All right, well, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Matthew chapter 5, right where Lee was reading. Wes, thank you for leading us. Continue praying for Pastor Chad as he is continuing to recover. May actually be here next Sunday. Chad, if you're watching, if that happens, that's great. Don't feel any pressure to be here, though. Uh, Just, you know, take your time, get better. We'll look forward to seeing you uh, when you do, uh, when you are able to get back. So Matthew chapter 5, while you're getting there, it is a common saying, and it is quite true, that you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And so if, if all you eat is like cream puffs and bonbons, you're going to wind up being a walking pastry of some sort, right? I mean, it's a very true, in general, and there are different, I mean, I, I get there's genetics that play into all this, but in general, like if you eat healthier, you're going to in general be healthier. And if you eat in an unhealthy manner, in general, you're going to be a bit you know, more unhealthy. That's a general statement as it relates to our physical bodies, which are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We should try to take care of them. But that is also true, and maybe even more so, spiritually. That you are what you eat. And so if if you are constantly consuming violence, if you're constantly consuming lust, if you're constantly consuming anger, if you're constantly consuming rage tweeting, if you're constantly consuming all of these different things, like you are what you eat. And just as it, like when you eat unhealthy, it's not like overnight you suddenly become unhealthy, but over time you become unhealthy. And it's the same thing here. Maybe you don't look that way immediately, but over time you will come to look like what you consume. You are what you eat. And so Jesus tells us in the fourth beatitude there in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied because you are what you eat. And so this morning we're going to be talking about this beatitude. And one of the neat things about this beatitude is that it serves kind of as like a hinge for all the rest of the beatitudes. It's like a hinge in the beginning. Because like if you follow the flow of thought, you've got uh, poverty of spirit, and that leads to mourning over your sin, and that leads to a meekness of life. And then that should cause you, therefore, to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that you don't have. And then as you hunger and thirst for that, that produces in you the rest of the Beatitudes. It produces in you mercy. And it produces in you purity of heart. And it produces in you peacemaking. And it produces in you actually persecution. You're like, what? Well, look at verse 10. Why why are you persecuted? For what sake? It's right there in your Bible. You can talk out loud. For righteousness sake. And so the very thing that produces in us mercy and purity of heart and peacemaking is the very thing we're going to wind up being persecuted for. Because, I mean, you can mark it down. These Jesus-like qualities will result in like rebuttals and and people firing back at you. And unfortunately, not always just from like non-Christians. Sometimes from Christians, because a lot of times like in the Twitter sphere, if you look out there today, it's almost heretical to be someone who shows mercy to someone. 
or seeks to make peace with someone different from them, who believes differently, especially on matters of opinion. And so holistically, the Beatitudes all flow together and fit together. You just see the flow, poverty of spirit, to mourning over sin, to a lifestyle of meekness, to hunger and thirsting for righteousness, which then produces mercy and, and peacemaking. And then the product we're going to talk about today, purity of heart. Purity of heart. Because you are what you eat. And so this week, we're doing verses 6 and 8 because they so closely go together. Next week, we'll talk about mercy and peacemaking. The week after that, we'll talk about persecution. But this week, the hinge verse, you are what you eat verse, and then the closely related purity of heart that that therefore produces. And so just like last week, uh, our points are the text itself. And so number one, and I want you to write the whole beatitude out, number one in your notes, write, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I want you to remember here what we're looking at with these lists of blessings, these beatitudes, is this is Jesus's definition of what it is to be blessed. The world has a whole different definition, lots of different kinds of definitions, even of what it means to be hashtag blessed. But these are Jesus's definition of what it looks like to be someone who is blessed. All right, these eight beatitudes, and they're not pick and choose, they are holistic, they go together. And every single one of them, all eight of them, are supernatural. They are works of the Spirit. They they don't come to you naturally. I mean, just using the language of this one that we're in right here, like hungering and thirsting, it is natural to hunger for good food, right? Somebody uh, brings, I mean, Brad's eating steak like every day. He's trying to get buff. But it is natural to hunger for filet mignon. Like that is a natural lobster and butter sauce. It is natural to hunger for that, right? And and the staff can give you, can attest well, um, and spouses, it is natural to hunger for Maggiano's zucchini fritti. And they're cheesecake. (laughs) It is natural to hunger for that. It is natural to hunger. Like, have you ever been super hungry? Right? I mean, it doesn't matter what you eat. You're going to find something, you're going to eat it, and it will be delicious. Period. That's why people will eat nasty stuff when they're camping. Be like, man, that was the best meal I ever had because you're so hungry. It is natural to hunger and thirst for these things, but it is unnatural. You know you've crossed over to the supernatural when you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's not a natural explanation for that. You know that's a work of the Spirit. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are you. Like, congratulations, I approve of you. Because that's what blessing really is. It's 
far more about divine approval than it is some human feeling. And Christ is saying to you that you are blessed when you have a supernatural desire born out of meekness, recognizing your poverty of spirit and the love of Christ, the grace that he gives to sinners like us in spite of us. When you have a desire for his transforming grace and his work of transforming us towards righteousness, when you have that desire, you're blessed. That's what he says. But that's a work of the Spirit. Well, what is this righteousness, though? When it says, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, what is that righteousness? Well, first of all, let me talk about what it's not, all right? What it's not, and I'm going to give you a word, and then I'll define it. What it's not is imputed righteousness, okay? Imputed righteousness. He's not talking about that here, as important as that is. Here's what imputed righteousness is. Like, for the believer, you need to understand that imputed righteousness has already happened, happens at the moment of conversion. I'll try to draw it out. A lot of us sometimes, even if you don't have that much of a background in the church, you might have some understanding, especially in the Bible Belt, of the gospel, which means good news. And so people will will be like, uh, the gospel is, you know, Jesus died on the cross and rose again for my sins. That's very true. He did. But if that's all your definition of the gospel... That's like trying to make chocolate chip cookies without the chocolate chips. Like you are missing a key ingredient. The gospel is not just that Jesus died and rose again. It's that he first lived for you. Right? Like Jesus died in your place for your sins to pay the penalty for your sins. But first, he had to live for you in your place to live a perfect sinless life that none of us have lived. It takes the active obedience of Christ to be what helps justify. All these ingredients must go together. Life, death, burial, resurrection. All these must go together. And so what happens, imputed righteousness is at the moment you believe that perfect sinless life that Christ lived is given to you, it is credited to you, it is imputed to you, it is placed upon you. And so now when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your broken, busted up, no righteousness. He sees you in the righteousness of Christ. That you are blameless and holy, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did in his life and in his death and resurrection. And that's given to you. That's what imputed righteousness is. It is fundamental to the gospel, to the Christian faith. But as important as that righteousness is, that's not the righteousness he's talking about here. It's also not social righteousness. Jesus is not here saying, blessed are those who uh, seek after social righteousness and moral justice. Although that would be true if he did say it. But that's not what he's saying here. The scripture is clear that God is pleased with those who seek after holistic, like consistent life ethic that you find in the Bible. Consistency. And so we should long to see justice in our land and the eradication of racism, of abortion, poverty, abuse, mistreatment of people made in God's image. We should long for that, but that's not what this beatitude's about either. 
What Jesus is talking about here is personal righteousness. Like you and I seeking to grow in righteousness, seeking to grow in holiness. That's what he's talking about here. A righteousness that will produce mercy and peacemaking and purity of heart. And friends, this is an unseen righteousness, right? It is largely unseen. I mean, the Pharisees, they tried to do things because they wanted to be seen. They wanted people to see them. And so their, their reward was what they got right in that moment. They prayed long prayers. They used big words. But the righteousness that Jesus has in mind is a meek righteousness. It is an unpretentious righteousness. It doesn't have smugness or haughtiness about it. I did not mark Jesus, and that is not to mark his followers. And so it's not putting on airs, it's not doing stuff, looking over your shoulder to see if somebody notices, see who's watching. It's unseen. It's also an often unappreciated righteousness. Because again, verse 10, what are you going to wind up getting persecuted for? Righteousness. And so it's very often unappreciated. When you live your life for the approval of God alone and not for other people, very often you'll take shots. And Jesus blesses you as you hunger for him. And so in the end, the righteousness that we are to seek is a desperate hungering to be conformed to God's will. It's a desperate hungering to be conformed to God's will. And so how do, how do you know if you are hungering and thirsting for this kind of righteousness? Well, I'll give you three questions. Question one, are you satisfied with yourself as it relates to obedience to Christ? As it relates to the holiness of your life, as it relates to the purity of your heart, are you satisfied with yourself? The person who is pleased and content with his own righteousness will see little need for God's. And so, friend, no matter how mature you may think you are, just side note, you think you're mature probably means you're not that mature. But no matter how mature you think you are, you are still in need of growth. You still have so far, the gap between Christ and us is so gigantic. Question two, do you have an appetite for God's word? Are you in it on your own? That's how you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Question three, is your hunger and thirst unconditional? Like the rich young ruler, he wanted Christ and his possessions. What about you? Do you want Christ and still hang on to your pride? Do you want Christ and still hang on to your immorality? Do you want Christ and still hang on to your political idols? Is it an unconditional hungering and thirsting? Ask yourself these things. And then notice the promise here. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will, you shall be satisfied. But satisfied with what? Well, with, with attaining that for which you hunger and thirst. Like if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied by becoming ever increasingly righteous. And there is both a 
present action of that, but also future, all right? We talked about this a little bit last week. Already and not yet. And so we will grow in righteousness. It will produce mercy and purity and uh, peacemaking. But also, ultimately, that will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Like, there is satisfaction to be had in this life right now. There's a hole in our hearts that draws us to Christ. That's why Augustine says, you know, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Blaise Pascal has a quote along the same lines. So there is satisfaction that can only be found ultimately in Christ in this life. All your God replacements will fall and crumble underneath. But full and lasting satisfaction is not till Jesus comes again. And the presence of sin is eradicated. Death is eradicated. New heavens, new earth. So our satisfaction is both now and in the future. It is an already and not yet. And so, listen, just as there is to be an, big word, eschatological, which means like end times, that's when Jesus comes again. Just as there is to be, there is to be an eschatological hunger in our lives for Christ to come again and fix this mess. But there's also an eschatological dimension of our satisfaction. Your satisfaction for our hunger here and now. And it's Christ. And it will be finalized and fully realized when he comes again. There's a greater one coming. And so listen. If you're in a dry season right now. And you feel like you're just walking in the desert wandering in the desert and your prayers aren't getting past the roof in your house and no one's there no one's listening if that's the way you feel right now but you are you are walking by faith you are pushing on through faith even though you don't feel anything listen that is okay and don't despise that moment because christ is working in you in your inner man He's working to change you, to shape you, to fashion you, to lift you out of the quarry, disconnect you from the rock you've been connected to so long, and you will be satisfied ultimately. You will be satisfied ultimately. And so don't lose heart. God has not betrayed you in this moment. He has not left you in this moment because if you are in Christ His spirit, John emphasized when he was reading, his spirit is in you, so how could he leave you? He can't leave himself. So he's not going to do that. So, brother, take heart, brother, sister. Hang in there. Keep walking. But then also, just really practically, if you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. And if you're thirsty, what do you do? You drink. And so... Feast, brethren, feast, eat, take up and read. This is how you seek Christ. The temple of the veil has been torn. The presence of Christ has been made available. Stop and eat. Somebody's like, well, I don't know what to read. Start with the Gospel of John. Well, I don't know if I'll understand that. We'll read a psalm. So I definitely won't understand that. Friend, get a message Bible. (laughs) Do something. Read, eat. You are what you eat. So get in the book. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will, okay, you will be satisfied. And again, this verse is the hinge, right? It produces things. It produces mercy and peacemaking. But today, the product we're looking at is the production of purity in heart. And, and I mean, it just makes sense, right? If you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you're satisfied, like that's given to you, that's going to produce a purity in heart. And so, number two, write the beatitude out there, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, heart, okay? Our hearts are amazing. They're strong. They pump. They move our blood. They're an amazing thing. But heart in the Bible refers to, like, the centrality of who you are. It's your thoughts. It's your feelings. It's your emotions. It's your will. It's all of these things. It's, it's, it's the core of our souls, the fount of our inner being. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So you watch over your heart. Not, not like EKG looking at that thing, but like what it is, your inner core being. And so the condition of our hearts is critically important to Jesus. It is. And in one sense, blessed are the pure in heart. In one sense, we, we all are already pure in heart, right? We've been made pure in Christ. Again, it's been imputed to us. That's been given to us. But also, again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. As true as that is, that's not his point here. Purity of heart, as Jesus is using it here, really has two distinct but related senses. All right. The first one is an inner moral holiness that's the opposite of just pure external piety or just pure external, like, look at me, the external. The second one is, like, kind of as it relates to freedom from double-mindedness. So it's like sincerity. All right, so we're going to talk about both of them. We'll take them one at a time. And so first is that inner moral holiness that's the opposite of external piety. So when you look through all of Scripture, I mean, you see the Old Testament prophets, right, calling out that God is more concerned with what's going on in your your heart than like the specific sacrifices and ceremonial things that you are to do. And you see Moses say, hey, you need to be circumcised more in your heart than you are in the flesh. You see David in the Psalms say, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? This is Psalms 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Samuel calls out to Saul, it is better to obey than sacrifice. And then Jesus, you know, lays into the Pharisees and says, Matthew 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are all like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within 
you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If there's not a tinge of conviction in your heart right now, something's not working. The pure in heart is to be a person who mourns over the impurity of their heart. To be pure in heart is to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy apart from the grace of God. To be pure in heart is to thirst and hunger after righteousness. To be pure in heart is, is, not, to, is not absolute perfection in this life, but the intense, relentless pursuit of it. Though we'll never get there. To be pure in heart is to engage in an ongoing, never-ending pursuit in the power of God's grace for holiness. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. That heart is impure which sees no need for purity. That heart is impure which sees no need for purity. The pure in heart may sin, but he feels no complacency in it. And so listen, it's not a call for perfection that's unattainable in our lives, in this fallen and broken world. But it is a call for pursuing it. Pursuing it. Fighting your sin. Making war on your sin. And every single one of us, if you take one second, you could, boom, in your mind, one sin I need to war against that has kind of been winning in my life lately. Make war on it. That may mean taking drastic measures. Take them. Take them. That's the first part, this inner moral holiness that's the opposite of external piety. The second part is about freedom from double-mindedness. That's the second way this purity of heart is used here. J.B. Phillips translates this verse like this. Blessed are those who are utterly sincere. And so the question is, are you sincere? Am I sincere? We have to ask ourselves these things. Like we all sin. We're going to sin, but are we trying our best by the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit in our, in our will to try and live a life that is pleasing to God? Or are we double-minded? And James says that a man who is double-minded is unstable in all his ways. And he calls him, therefore, in... James chapter 4, verse 8, to draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so listen again, introspective. The Beatitudes are like a mirror. They cause you to look in the mirror and ask hard questions. While we even remember that Jesus gives grace. But we are still called to this. So as we ask these hard questions, 
Do you attempt to be friends with both God and the world at the same time? And seriously, examine your life. Are you somebody who rides the fence? You want just enough of God to to get out of hell and and, and to be there for you if things go a little bit awry, but you want just as little of God to go ahead and be a hellion now. One foot in, one foot out, double-minded. I really want the world, but I don't want to go to hell. I need a genie in the bottle to be there for me when I need him. God is my co-pilot. Brother, if God's your co-pilot, trade seats. And so straight up, are you double-minded? Am I double-minded? Are we divided in our loyalties? Jesus says we can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and mammon. And so what's more important to you, God or mammon? God or money? God or popularity? God or status? God or how people perceive you? God or success? Like what's more important to you? Living out mercy and, and, and purity and peace or, or, or winning an argument? Seeing that your view on coronavirus is proven true in social media. And so for all of us, all of us in this room, at some level, we need to repent. Because we're way more double-minded than we want to admit. And so, time out from the sermon. Let's pray. Worship band, don't come up right now. Father, forgive us for our double-mindedness. We are so prone to push you to the peripheral of our lives and focus on Things that will not matter a hill of beans 10,000 years from now. Help us, Father, to more live with an eternal perspective and contend for holiness in our lives. Help us, Lord, to take the log out. And forgive us, God, for getting our priorities out of whack. And so constantly taking you, who we would say, most important thing in our life, and not living like it. And thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Pure in heart, the singularly focused on Christ. It's they who are hashtag blessed. And if you, can, if you look at the promise, for 
for they shall see God. And again, that's got an eschatological component to it. it. Like when Jesus returns, like that kind of component to it, Jesus will come again. He will end all the mess of the world and he will usher in eternal joy and peace, new heavens and new earth. That's going to happen and we will see Christ like he will come again. We will see him. But it's not just a merely heavenly like hope and promise. There are ways of getting little glimpses of God at work in the here and now. I mean, when God answers a prayer in your life, that's like seeing God. He's at work. When, when God steps in right at the moment you need Him to, He steps into your life, that's like seeing God. When, 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 when He speaks to you powerfully from His Word, That's like seeing God. When someone hands you $700 at the exact moment you need $700, that's like seeing God. Being filled with the Spirit is like seeing God. This is what Jesus is promising for the here and now. He's saying, He's with you, friends. He's with you. Watch Him work. Have eyes to see and ears to hear. He's at work all around you. Usually in about 10,000 ways, you might be aware of three. Open your eyes though and you'll see him. And so it all kind of comes back to you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Down at the Nashville Zoo, if you've been there, you may know this. They've got like the, the flamingos, right? The big flamingo deal. Pink flamingos, right? You know what color? I just gave it all. You know what color flamingos are? Not pink. They appear pink because of what they eat. So the question for us, you are what you eat, is what you are eating has what you have been eating so colored your life that it's covering or partially covering Christ in you. People can't see it because you're eating all this other stuff. You are what you eat. Now, here's the good news. You can always change your diet. And so maybe it's time for a diet change. Maybe it's time for a diet change. If you're someone who constantly thinks that the grass, I mean, the grass to you always seems greener over there. Could it be that that's because you are more focused on things of the world than you are pursuing Christ? And so it's time for a diet change. Like you plan on eating tomorrow, right? Let's eat some righteousness. You plan on drinking tomorrow, right? Let's drink some righteousness. You are what you eat. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You are what you eat. Let's pray.
Father, even as we prayed in repentance now, we pray in request that you would help us to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we would, that you would birth that in us by a work of your Spirit, Father, and that we would not excuse away, well, if the Spirit's going to do it, He's going to do it, and I don't have to worry about it. We need grace-driven effort as well. And so, Father, help us to take up and read. Help us to make choices in our life to feed on righteousness, not on unrighteousness. Choices that may make us change some things about our lives. Things that may not make sense to other people. But, Father, we want you. We want to know you and the fellowship of your sufferings. We want to know you in the power of your resurrection. We want to know you in the unending lavishness of grace that you pour out on desperate sinners. And we want to worship you and glorify you for that grace, for that goodness, for your kindness. And Lord, we want to be satisfied. And we want to see you these are good promises you give that if that that these things will happen and so fathers we sometimes sing in here father help us to and father give us clean hands and give us pure hearts and let us not lift our soul to another but us not have a divided heart Grant us these things for your glory, God, and our ever-increasing joy and good. In Jesus' name, amen.